another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream And you can holler Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, dictate it again from the home office, it's going to be normal. I may actually get to do a mobile podcast this week. I'm going to actually run up to uh, Frisco uh, for a little bit of consulting and some things that we need to do at the uh, kind of end of life cycle, some of the things I've been doing up there on Thursday. So I may actually podcast mobile tomorrow. We'll see. Don't know if it's going to happen or not, um, but if it does, you know, you'll get a mobile podcast once again. Enjoy them when they happen because they won't happen often anymore. So, what are we going to talk about today? Well, yesterday I talked about storing food. So today I'm going to turn around and I'm going to talk about direct threats to our food supply, uh, primarily from our agriculturally based food supply, because what you have to realize is um, <clears throat> you may think, well, I don't really need to worry about you know all this stuff that people grow because I'm mainly a carnivore and I eat meat, but what does the meat eat? So if we don't have good crop supplies available throughout the world, then we have food shortages of all things. So we're going to talk about that. I'm going to talk a little bit about um, Monsanto's role in this. I've had a lot of questions lately about um, why I hate Monsanto so much. I've had a lot of people send me a little link to uh, an article on Forbes. And Forbes named Monsanto Company of the Year for 2009. Now, the way Forbes judges things, I'm going to tell you, they didn't exactly get it wrong, and we'll talk more about that in just a minute. First, I have to go ahead and uh, knock out our housekeeping today. Um, first thing we have to do today is uh, recognize, as usual, our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, Ready Made Resources. Uh, check these guys out. They have everything you could possibly need for your prepping activities. You, you name it, they got it. Really great solar stuff, really great wind stuff. Excellent 12-volt appliances, lots of food for storage, food storage, uh, 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 what am I looking for, like tools and supplies to do your own storage as well. Um, you name it, from the tactical to the practical, you can find it at ready-made resources. Great service, great pricing, check them out. Next up today is Tactical Response Gear. Um, one of our people on the forum said tactical response gear is like a crack dealer to a crack addict when you're a tactical person and you like tactical stuff. They just have that much cool stuff, um, and it's so easy to do business with them, and they really take care of you. So if you're really a tactical-minded person, check out tactical response gear. The other thing I would tell you is uh, James Jaeger, who runs tactical response gear, also runs tactical response, which is an on-site training facility. Uh, in fact, they do traveling classes around the country, not just at his range where they give you training on how to use your weapon properly. Uh, when I had James on the show, he said he often has people say, what should I buy for my next gun? And he'll say, well, how many guns do you have? And they might have 10 or 20 guns. He'll say, how many firearms training classes have you had in the last couple of years? And a lot of times they'll say zero. And he says, well, take the money and invest it in training. Even if you don't do it with me, you, can only ha you only have so much use for so many weapons. Knowing how to use one may be more valuable than having 20. I couldn't agree more. So check out his training options as well. Uh, with that, we'll move on on the housekeeping. I really want more and more people that listen to this show to join our forum. I'd say probably about 40% of our listeners are on the forum based on raw numbers alone, and that's pretty good. But I honestly feel that every person that listens to this show should become a forum member. Maybe you don't become the most active forum member, but go in there once in a while, check things out, post a comment, ask a question, and help somebody. You did that once a week. Once a week, you drop by, say hi, start to make some friends, expand your community, and see if there's anybody asking a question that you have an answer for. You'll be amazed at the difference it'll make in the way you think about how important the things that you're doing are. Uh, next, check out our gear shop, shirts, hats, you name it. we got great stuff there, uh, more stuff being added all the time. Um, Tiffany and Rich are doing a great job with the store. It could not be in better hands, and I know they're going to take good care of you. Um, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Um, I mentioned yesterday we are going to be bringing on Seeds of Change, which sounds kind of like, what is Seeds of Change? Is a political organization or something? No, they're, they're ARA Seed Supplier. Uh, one of the most amazing catalogs of heirloom and rare variety seeds uh, that I've ever seen. 
It's up there with Seed Savers Exchange and up there with High Mowing. Oh, I guess they would see as competitors, but probably friendly competitors because they're all out to do the same thing. Uh, some of the really cool stuff that I talk about growing in my garden, um, some of the varieties of beans and some of the varieties of tomatoes and things like that, that's where I get my seeds. So I contacted him and said, hey, look, a lot of my listeners garden. Uh, they're in the gardening and permaculture. I think we have a good match here. Would you support the brigade? And they said, yeah, we'll do 10% discount for all orders, period. Uh, so I thought that was a good deal. As soon as their webmaster sets up the uh, code, he's on vacation, we'll be adding that. That's just one example. Um, there's just so much there now. Um, there's a $50 preferred membership uh, for free with Western Botanicals. Western Botanicals, you know, one of our great sponsors, that membership gives you 25% off on everything you order there. Self-Sufficient Life just came on. They do ebooks. Um, there's over a dozen ebooks. Um, 50% off all of them. If you bought all the ebooks, that would save you $90. It's a good deal, folks. Uh, it's more than just supporting the show now. And my goal is to keep adding a new premium vendor there uh, at least once a week until we add 20 in 2010. And then I might get a little bit more selective at who we take on, but I'm going to build it out. Eventually, you're going to log into your members' brigade on a daily basis. Anytime you think about buying anything, you're going to log in there, and you're going to say, who can I buy from at a discount? That's And it wasn't intended to be that initially, but as I started looking at how I could add value, and I have more and more people supporting the show, and more and more people that are concerned about prepping, they're concerned about the environment, they're concerned about alternative energy, they're concerned about food, they're concerned about government, they have a thirst for knowledge. The more and more people I have like that, the more and more leverage I have to be able to do things for you so that when you do spend your money, you get a better deal. So that's why I've put a big focus on that this year and improving the brigade that way this year. So with that, it's a bit long for housekeeping, but you know, I want to let you guys know the things that I'm doing to make the show better for you now that I have more time. And one of the big commitments I've made is to make sure that if somebody's giving me money, I give them way more than that value back. That's how I've always done business my whole life. That's what I'm doing now. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and let's, uh, let's get into today's main topic. Let's start out with Monsanto as a whole. And let's start out with the fact that um, Forbes magazine named Monsanto Company of the Year for 2009. And um, let's see how we can justify the fact that Jack considers Monsanto one of the most evil organizations on the planet, and Forbes, who's highly respected, definitely more respected than I am in the public eye, uh, says they are, you know, uh, company of the year. Do I totally disagree with Forbes on this? In some very real ways, yes, because when I first got this link to this article, it was about a week ago, and I hadn't really read it till now because I've been busy and trying to do a lot of other things and putting other shows together. But my initial reaction was Forbes probably named Monsanto Company of the Year because they made a buttload of money in 2009 and they returned an extremely uh, good return to their uh, to their shareholders. That um, even in the dip. Um, they were so far outpacing the S&P 500 at that point that stockholders holding Monsanto barely noticed the dip and uh, just have returned record profits once again to their shareholders. So the fact is Monsanto did do that. Monsanto made a lot of money in 2009. They've made a lot of money for many, many years. They're a very well-run company financially. So when someone like Forbes says that Monsanto is company of the year and Forbes is primarily a financial publication, um, I don't like it. It annoys me. It bothers me. It disgusts me. But I comprehend it. I get it because their primary purpose in life is to tell you which companies are good, solid investments. And as much as I detest Monsanto, and as much as I would never knowingly put my money in Monsanto, I want to hedge my bet here that I just might own a mutual fund somewhere, and someday that mutual fund might buy Monsanto stock. If I find out, I'll, I'll dive out of it. But it could happen without my knowledge. But I would never knowingly support this company in any way, shape, or form. I won't buy their products. Um, I, 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 you know, I, I won't even use, I won't, you know, I won't even use Roundup, uh, and, and I hate Roundup to begin with. But there's some places where it actually makes sense to have a herbicide uh, for very specific reasons and very specific applications, specifically for short-term needs. And um, but I won't use it. 
because Monsanto makes it, and I won't use any private label of it that turns out to go back and actually be Roundup. I won't touch this company with a 10-foot pole, but I have to acknowledge profit. And when a, a company like Forbes is looking at a company, they're not going to put up a company that lost $50 billion last year's company of the year. What disturbs me with this article is instead of focusing on the profit, this article almost completely spends all of its uh, all of its capital, so to speak, justifying how great Monsanto really is, how hard they're working to solve problems with world hunger, how it's a shame that people got so upset over their genetically modified wheat that it had to be stopped, and you know maybe one day they'll they'll do that again, and how they're moving into different businesses now like fruits and vegetables. Oh, that's great, and uh, how. The problem used to be that their, their seeds were evil. Now the problem is they're too good and they're spinning things. And it really makes me sick. And I want you to go read the article for yourself. And maybe you've never heard of Monsanto or you don't know about the, uh, the things that, that many people despise about them. I'll tell you about that in a second. And I'm going to tell you about that not as a one-man war against Monsanto. Because they're not the only company doing stuff like this. ConAgra is not exactly a saint. Okay. But these are the biggest example of this. But I'm more concerned about the threat to our long-term safety and food supply. And I'll give you many reasons for that uh, here in just a moment. What I want you to do, though, is read the article first before you go and read any other research that I have today. And I want you to be honest with yourself, even if these people turn your stomach, about the very last part of the article where there's a chart that shows the profits they've returned shareholders. Because it's just because that is what makes them the company of the year for Forbes. In reality, in spite of all the justification nonsense, and I want you to understand how big a problem that is in our world. If a company's making that kind of money, who will take them down? Especially now, in a world where you're too big to fail. So I want you to read that. I want you to take it in. And now I want to start telling you the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say. Monsanto began a very, very long time ago. And eventually went into uh, the pesticide and chemical industry. They at one time were one of the leading manufacturers of DDT. They brought us the wonderful uh, artificial sweetener, aspartame, um, they brought us many of the PCBs that now pollute our, our, our surface water throughout our country. Uh, they ran an operation in Anniston, Alabama, and made over half of that town sick, denied it, got caught red-handed, like the, like the tobacco companies did, folks. Red-handed. Their own documentation, acknowledging the problems that they created with PCBs in Anniston, Alabama. And, and documenting how they covered them up. This is documented in their own documents. When confronted about this later, their CEO stated, I'm proud of what we did. We did what was necessary to protect our shareholders. This is public record, folks. This is who this company is. You'd think you would have went to jail. Well, this all happened in the 70s, and they're company of the year now. Nobody went to jail. Monsanto is doing some things that really disturb me. The, 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 they went out of that chemical business to a large degree and focused more on agriculture because they knew that was the next big boom. We cannot fault this company's vision for understanding finance. In fact, it's part of what makes them a deadly enemy because they know what they're doing. Their CEO, their new CEO, Gave this great big speech to a new employee. I read the, uh, I listened, it was, this was, um, Food Inc., the documentary Food Inc., you should watch this. And, and this, this employee, former employee of Monsanto heard this great speech by the CEO, and, and then went and started back, you know, back to his little division, and was gonna start work, and he was all excited about solving the world's hunger problems. And you know what the people that he was working with told him? That guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He's our front man. We're not worried about solving problems here. We, we make money here. That's the man's own words, folks. So what is this company doing today that so many people are concerned about? How does it threaten our food supply? I mean, if these guys are making food better, 
if they're making crops to produce better, if they're making things that are more drought tolerant and ship better and store better and all these wonderful things, how are they, you know, risking our future? Because they're genetically modifying foods. Let me explain something about genetic modification versus a hybrid. This is important that you understand because there's a lot of misinformation and there's a lot of confusion and there's a lot of problems in our community with people that seem to believe that they understand the difference between genetically modified and non-genetically modified foods. And by spreading that disinformation, we lose credibility with people that, ha that know the truth. A hybrid is not, by being a hybrid, a genetically modified organism. Period. A hybrid is not evil. It may or may not be sterile. Most tend to be sterile, or more accurately, the seed will reproduce, Okay, but it will not have a guaranteed result in the subsequent generations. So what produces a great, big, beautiful, four-lobe pepper this season may produce smaller three-lobed peppers next season and by a third generation may be producing very inferior low-yielding plants or it may not. There are many hybrids that actually reproduce just fine. Some of the heirlooms that we plant today started out as hybrids. One would be the mortgage lifter tomato brought to us by Burpee, one of the great companies in its day. I think they have a pretty close association of Monsanto today and it bothers me because they were the pride of my grandfather's seed collection was his burpee seeds but the mortgage lifter tomato was created in the Great Depression it was a hybrid of two different varieties of tomatoes but it was a, a reproductive hybrid and the guy that created it why it was called mortgage lifter uh, started selling the the plants for a dollar a plant or 10 seeds for a dollar or something like that. I don't remember the exact deal. But eventually, he actually paid off the entire mortgage on his house with this new new created tomato because it was such a great tomato. And the seeds from Mortgage Lifter save, and they go back to that family, and they're an heirloom in that way. And even though they come from a hybrid, a crossbreeding of two plants, they reproduce just fine. Nothing wrong with them. We may create another type of hybrid, and it may have the problems that I just discussed. A hybrid is simply we take two varieties of a common species, two bell peppers, and we cross them. That's it. And there's a reason that that's done. Hybrid in the first generation often creates what's called vigor. What vigor means is it, it grows faster, it grows stronger, it's more resilient, it's more robust. Many home gardeners that grow heirloom varieties create their own hybrids. They will purposely, manually cross-pollinate varieties to create hybrids. They'll save the hybrid seed. They'll do pure crosses of the hybrid and see if it produces a reliable result or not. Sometimes you get a hybrid that's good for one generation, uh, but it has some very unique advantages. So there's nothing wrong with hybrids. Now, if you're storing seed for long-term storage so that you can plant seed and save seed in a really bad end-of-the-world scenario, you want open-pollinated varieties of seeds. Okay, I know I'm going long here before I go into what Monsanto is doing, but you got to have the background to understand the danger. You really do. So open-pollinated seed may or may not be an heirloom. An heirloom seed is not by its nature better than anything else. An heirloom seed means that the seed line goes back to a point, a family or a region or an area or a group, and it is an heirloom the same way that if we had a chest that a great-grandmother gave to a grandmother that gave to a granddaughter that gave that to a daughter that gave that to a, a new young daughter. That chest is an heirloom because it was passed down through a lineage. That's what an heirloom seed is. By that very nature, for the seeds to be passed down generation upon generation, they have to be seed that can be saved and reproduce itself generation after generation, right? And often an heirloom will be adapted to a specific region. So if a person in western Pennsylvania, uh, for five families, is constantly saving and reusing tomato seeds, even if it's the same... Um, Let's say it's it's a, a, a 
what's a good tomato variety? A mortgage lifter, okay? So mortgage lifter that somebody in the 1930s in western Pennsylvania got one of those original plants and started working with it and saving the seeds. Now some, some, you know, some, some, uh, redneck like me from the south goes up, buys the mortgage lifter seed, and comes back down to Georgia. And he starts working with it in the 1940s. And that is the mortgage lifter seed that was grown in Georgia in the 40s. It's really its own heirloom line at that point. Those two seeds, even though they come from common ancestry, will have, by generation after generation, one is adapted to Georgia red clay and humidity, and the other one has adapted to Pennsylvania loam. And shorter, shorter summers, uh, but longer days during the summer. They've adapted differently. That's an heirloom. Open pollinated simply means that they're not hybrid, that they require a pollination uh, from from a, a like plant. So open pollinated is what everybody refers to as heirlooms today. They're not the same thing. They're very, very different. For instance, there's many open pollinated varieties of corn that may not really be any type of an heirloom. They could be even new varieties of corn. Here's the scary part. There's open pollinated varieties of plants that have been genetically modified. So we think, well, they genetically modify them so they can't be reproduced. No, that they want to do that. Let me give you an example. Monsanto has sued multiple farmers over rapeseed. We call it canola in the United States. Canola oil uh, comes from canola seed, which is actually rapeseed, uh, as it's called in Europe. Well, what Monsanto has done, and we'll start to get into now why these guys are a threat. They've taken canola, or rapeseed, and they've genetically modified it at the DNA level. This is not a hybrid. It's not a cross-pollination. This is going into the gene sequencing and splicing new genes in. What did they do with it first? Well, they spliced a gene in that made this thing resistant to Roundup, which is a herbicide. Normally, if it's green and you spray Roundup on it, it's dead tomorrow. It'll kill anything. But they made this canola that's resistant to Roundup. They also did the same thing with soybeans. So now, here's what the farmer's told. This is great, Mr. Farmer. Here's what you do. Go through your field and plow it. Straight lines, damn the erosion. Right? Fertilize it and spray it with Roundup. Kill everything. Then go through and plant Roundup-ready canola or Roundup-ready soy. Then wait till it comes up to a certain height. Go through there and spray the whole damn field again with Roundups. Kill, kill everything except these plants that will live. You'll have zero competition for your fertilization, for your land, and for your space. You'll have less crop loss. And then into the food supply goes canola oil, soybean oil, and soybean product that we all consume that's been genetically modified that way. And it's considered normally recognized as safe by our government because it's still a soybean even though we've spliced something in at the genetic level. But we're not content. No, no, no. No. What must we do next? Okay, now we're going to turn our eyes to corn. And what are we going to do with corn? Well, the big problem with corn is we have this little thing called a corn borer. It looks like a little mealyworm. If you've ever seen them, they, they get into an ear of corn and they ruin it. They eat it. we got to get rid of them. What can we do? We can't just spray the corn because they get underneath the husk ears. And even if you spray the corn, you just contaminate it and you don't get to them. Anything strong enough to get inside those ears, to get at those little suckers, boy, it would, you know, even the government's not going to let us sell that kind of corn, so what are we going to do about it? So he says, I know, let's, let's splice in the gene from a fish. Yes, you heard me right, a fish. Then what will that do? Well, it'll produce a toxin. What? It'll produce a toxin. But it's not really toxic to people. It's in such minute amounts uh, that it doesn't hurt people at all. They'll be fine. Okay, well, what does this toxin toxicate? What does it kill? Corn borers. So what we'll do is we'll splice this gene in there, and the corn borer that starts to eat this corn will immediately die. That'll break the life cycle. They won't be able to reproduce, and all the corn borers will die, and farmers will have corn. Sounds like a great idea, except we're taking a fish gene. And we did the same thing with cotton. Cotton boll weevil. We produced a, a toxin-producing cotton that kills the cotton weevil. Sounds great. Sounds like science fiction. It's science fact, and it's going on right now. Here's the problem with things like that. These plants, once they're out in the biosphere, if I have farmer A on one side of the road using 
Monsanto's products, and I have Farmer B on the other side doing everything organically, if they're growing the same varieties of, of uh, plants, if both are growing corn, Farmer A's corn blown by the wind will pollinate car- Farmer B's corn, and these genetic traits will be passed to plants that were never intended to have them, and you can't prevent it. It cannot be done. It cannot be stopped. And Monsanto has, when this has occurred, gone onto farmer's field who's never bought seeds from Monsanto, taken seed from the farmer's field without their knowledge, performed genetic testing upon the seeds, found their genes, and successfully prosecuted and sued farmers to the point of oblivion for stealing their genetics, because they have patents on them. Nice guys, eh? Well, that's great, Jack. Now we know Monsanto is a bunch of evil pricks. How does this affect me directly? How does this affect the future of food? Why are they a danger? Let's start with, how do you get, how do you get something like a fish toxin into a corn's genetic makeup? The two aren't compatible. You can't throw an ear of corn in a fish tank with a male fish, and he's not going to spawn with it and make a hybrid that way. Even if it would work, which it won't, wouldn't get exactly what we're looking for now, would we? We need to take one specific trait from one gene and splice it into another. And just that one gene needs to go into the genetic makeup of the corn. So we need to invade the corn at the cellular level. For all you biology types out there, what is the most successful organism in the the, the known universe at invading cells? Well, that would be a virus. See, if you want to invade a cell, the one thing that exists in a natural state that's designed to invade that cell is a virus. So what these twerps have done is they've taken this gene sequence and they've spliced it in with a virus. And then they use the virus to literally infect the corn to pass on the genetic trait. So they've created a virus that attacks corn and cotton and soy and other food crops. And they wanted to do it with wheat, but people pushed back on that one. But they'll try it again. Now, see, the next thing you have to understand is all this talk about, well, the seeds won't reproduce. A lot of that comes from people that want to sell you a whole bunch of seeds and say, well, my seeds reproduce. Most seed reproduces. I've gone to the grocery store, bought a cantaloupe, brought it home, planted the seeds, and we grew cantaloupes. Done that with watermelons, too. Productive ones. Hell, last summer I was sitting out on the porch eating watermelon uh, at the pool with my family. Stuck two seeds in one of my pots growing a miniature peach tree, and I ended up getting two watermelons off of uh, one of the vines that grew out of the uh, peach pot and just grew down the side of the uh, the deck and off onto the ground. We got two watermelons. So most seeds reproduce. See, that's a problem for Monsanto. So they started working on something called Terminator Gene. Now what's a Terminator Gene? Terminator Gene, what we do is we infect the cell with this gene as well. And uh, it tells the corn, for instance, um, don't make reproductive cells for the next generation. So if a farmer should happen to want to steal Monsanto's seeds, it wouldn't work. He could, let's say, grow 40 acres of corn and reserve a half acre for seed crop. Take all his seeds off his cobs and replant them next year. Well, if they had this Terminator gene in it, wouldn't grow again. Well, people got a little bit nervous about that. So apparently that hasn't gone to market yet, damn it. We could be making more money if we could do that because we'd stop all these people stealing our genes. It's how these people feel. It's their intellectual property. Life forms are their intellectual property. They own life, legally and forcibly own life. So the problem is not so much that you know they might put this thing on the market. They've actually done it. They've successfully created Terminator genes in their research facilities. That means that genetics exist. If those genetics get out into the biosphere, it could be a catastrophe in of itself. Imagine a gene that says corn don't reproduce yourself getting out into the biosphere. Corn can pollinate for up to 20 miles, and once it pollinates, it can pollinate again. Imagine that because it's cross-pollinating different varieties, that it takes, oh, I don't know, three or four generations for it to really start to rear its head and start to have seed crop failures. 
and all the other producers of seed start to have seed that won't reproduce anymore. Because see, Monsanto has a special spray. And if you spray the crop at a certain point in its development, it turns the Terminator gene off. So that they can produce seed, but nobody else can. And these people operate under the protection of the law in the United States. And they end up being Forbes' most you know, best company of the year because they make lots of money that way. Well, making lots of money is not the end justifying the means in of itself. If I set up a company called Jack's Punch in the Face, and for a fee, let's say $200, you could go on a website and give me the name, address, and picture of an individual who you'd like punched in the face. Put your little Visa card number in there and send me $200, $300, whatever I'm charging. And I have an employee in that area. His name is, you know, Joe, and he's about 400 pounds, works out every day at the local gym, and he works for me at Jack's Punch in the Face. And I send him a thing to his iPhone and say, here's your new assignment, Jim. Go over to this guy's house, knock on his door, punch him in the face. He knocks on the door, guy comes to the door, whack, punches him in the face, takes a picture of him rolling around on the floor. We send it back to you as proof that we did the job. And you're happy, we're happy. He's not happy because he got punched in the face, but hey, you know what? It's good for the economy. I've got employees. I'm paying taxes. I'm supporting the system. What's wrong with that? Violates the guy who's being punched in the face's rights. That's what's wrong with it. Would that business make money? If I could somehow have buddies in the government at the federal level, at the cabinet level, in both subsequently Democrat and Republican um, run uh, run uh, institutions. If I had buddies in the Congress and the Senate, if I had people that said, you know what, Jack Spierko can run Jack's punch in the face. And no one can do anything. And if anybody attacks him, you know, they're going to jail. And if anybody else sets up a competing punch in the face business, they're violating his patent, and we'll put them in jail for viol or sue them for violating his patent. How much money could I make with Jack's Punch in the Face dot com? I could make billions of dollars that way. Because there's plenty of people that want somebody punched in the face, but can't do it themselves because maybe they're cowards or they don't want to go to jail. It's not legal for you to punch them in the face, but hey, I can punch them in the face for you. That's what these people are doing. Now, this is how it gets worse. They also have created a substance that they're using um, for cows. And this is also a genetically modified substance. It goes into most dairy cows today in the United States, and most milk uh, that you are uh, you're drinking today has this chemical, and it's called BGH, or bovine growth hormone. And uh, so these little organic milk producers decided that, hey, you know what, maybe... Maybe we should make these people have to put, you know, some warning label on the milk that, that says there's genetically modified organisms in their milk. Um, people should know that that's what they're drinking. And the government said, no, we're not going to do that. So the organic producers, and even not really organic producers, but the producers that didn't, that abstained from the use of bovine growth hormone, decided, well, here's what we'll do. We'll just put on our um, milk label no genetically modified organisms, no GMOs, or maybe no bovine growth hormone used in the production of this milk. And instead of making the people that are using it say that they're using it, we'll just give consumers a choice to know when they're not using it. Monsanto jumped all over it and squashed it. What they said is that that statement could infer that there's something wrong with the other milk and damage their business. And the government sided with Monsanto. Government has decided that you don't need to know specifically there's no GMOs in your milk or your food. See, this was going to be done with corn uh, products as well and with other products. What, what was envisioned by the people that started this movement up is we'll just create a whole line of products. We'll get anybody that's, that, know, that makes sure they don't use genetically modified foods to put on their label no GMOs. And your government decided not only did you not need to be warned if you were consuming them, but you didn't even have a right to know that you were not consuming them and said, hey, organic taste. Organic, if you're doing organic, you're not getting GMOs, so work with the organic label. But organic production requires certain things that maybe don't violate GMOs. So just because you use a little bit of ammonium nitrate fertilizer, you're no longer organic 
but you're not genetically modified either. There's no real harm in eating some corn that uses some fertilizer, but I don't want to eat corn with biotoxin that's, that's been genetically infused in it. Now, of course, Monsanto's been telling us this stuff's completely safe, right? So there's a new study out now. I'll link to this too. And what this study says is this group went out and performed uh, research and decided to see what happens if we take a bunch of mice or, or rats and we feed them you know, all these different genetically modified corns and we feed some that are known to be ungenetically modified, what the difference is. And they found evidence, clear statistical evidence, of kidney and liver damage to the point of failure in some groups from ingesting this genetically modified corn. Monsanto said, this is, this is a lie. This isn't true. This is, this is even used in some of our own research, for God's sakes. These are statistical anomalies. They don't line up. Here's what they meant. The biotoxin corn, or the Roundup Ready corn, affects a male rat differently than a female rat. So that Monsanto says, well, then that's a statistical anomaly. Since it doesn't affect both genders the same way, it's not real. If you know anything about scientific method, that's preposterous. Um, if you're a male, you have testicles and a penis. If you're a female, you do not. If you're a female, you have ovaries and fallopian tubes. You have the ability to carry a child to term and give birth. If you're a male, you do not. We are biologically different as male and female. And there are many things that will affect a male or a female different that are damaging to both. If I give you something that damages reproductive ability, since your reproductive system is different if you're a male or a female, it affects males and females differently, but it may damage both sexes' reproductive uh, uh, cycles. Some chemicals may damage the reproductive cycle of females, but not males. Some may get into the male gene pool, not damage the male that they infect, and later affect females in subsequent generations. These are all facts about the way that different chemicals and, and properties play out through genetic sequencing. But Monsanto says this is not the same for both, or because the effects vary with the dose. If I give you more, it gets worse, or less, it gets better. That's not... Folks, read the article. Read Monsanto's statements. It, it, it's obscene that people can speak this way into a world of science, be heard, and not be put out of business. So, again, getting back to how does this affect us? How does this threaten our food supply? Well, as we've already discussed, we have this whole concept of a terminator gene, but let's be honest. At least for right now, it's not commercially available. It's not being produced. It's not out there as far as we know. It could have escaped. Even if it did, it probably hasn't escaped in sufficient quantity to really do any damage yet. Maybe. Let's just give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's say that that gene is gone for now, and it's off the table like they say it is, because we can trust Monsanto. Notice my snide remarks. Even with what they're doing now, what has gone on is this company has licensed its genetic technology to other companies Farmers are doing business using Monsanto product without even knowing it now. Even the ones that are enlightened and have decided, I don't want to deal with Monsanto, um, and have taken up doing business with another company, they may be using gen genetically modified traits from Monsanto through a licensing agreement. It's estimated now that Monsanto controls about 90% of the world's seed crops. I'll put a link up to an article about that too. 90%, either directly or indirectly. I've had people come back and go, oh, well, there's peasant farmers here and peasant farmers there, and they're doing rice and they're doing this, and, and Monsanto's not even here. And one guy said, oh, they're in China, that's all rice and I, on, on the blog, and I'll tell you what, Monsanto has a Chinese, uh, quite a few offices in China. They're working with China. Monsanto went into Iraq after the U.S. invasion of Iraq and went and told Iraqi farmers, you can no longer use the seeds that you've been using for generations because we have patents on them even though some of these seeds were originally created in Iraq. Some of them aren't even genetically modified. What happened is the world 
has gotten together at government levels and taken seeds and put them in seed banks so that they will be preserved. This is a good thing. But then what happens is a company like Monsanto now running a month goes in, finds a seed variety it would like to claim as its own. If nobody's patented it, they go and they put a patent on it, even though it's pre-existing. It's been there forever because no one else patented it first. They've done this with varieties of, of seed that, Iraqi, that were developed in Iraq. And they prevented these Iraqi farmers from using the seed without paying a fee to Monsanto. Do you understand the threat? Now, these guys are evil pricks. I believe that. I won't apologize for saying it. But even if these guys were, like, really nice guys, if, we, if they hadn't done anything wrong, ever, if they hadn't killed people in Anniston, Alabama, hidden it, and then claimed that they did the best thing they could for their shareholders and they were proud of it, they hadn't done any of that. You know? If they hadn't done any of that, I still wouldn't want one company, one entity, controlling 90% of the world's food supply. And here's the thing. When a company reaches a certain size, they can no longer create new markets. The only way they can grow in size is to continue to capture market share. So what does it mean when you control 90% of the market and you have to grow? You need 91, 92, 93. You get the picture? That's this company's goal, is to completely control the food market. And they want to do it on two ends. They want to control the food market first by providing you the seed and then providing you the spray that protects, makes your plant, your crop grow, or um, starves out anything that would compete with your crop. They want to control before, during, and after harvest. And they're well on their way to doing it. Most of the, and this is the thing that most people don't understand. When we think of food, we think of tomatoes and peppers and yeah, bread and stuff like that. But we think of all these vegetables and fruits. Most of the world's food production, most of it, the vast majority, is tied up in four things. Wheat, corn, rice. And I'm sorry, skip there a second, soybeans. That's it. Wheat, corn, rice, soybeans. I, I don't know what, if anything, Monsanto's doing with rice yet. I'm sure they're working with it. Let me pause for a second and find that out for you. Okay, I can't go deep into this, but they've produced something called golden rice that many experts say hasn't been tested enough before it's been released into the marketplace. And they've produced another variety of rice that's being grown on dry level land and harvested by tractors. So they're in the rice business, too. So here's what you have. You have a company that's putting its genetics into and biologically protecting the patents of the four major global food crops and now branching out into other things. So you know what, folks? That is a threat, and that's only one of the threats. What are some of the other threats combined with this? Well, the other threats, believe it or not, are what Monsanto's using as its justification for, quote, saving the world. That's what they claim to be doing with their marketing. We're saving the world. We need more food. We don't have enough. Some of the other things that are going on, Monsanto can't fix this. And that is the fact that we're depleting our aquifers. We're absolutely depleting our aquifers. Our shallow aquifers that refill, and more importantly, our fossil aquifers, our deep sea-level aquifers, are basically underground oceans of fresh water. Well, when those are empty, they never refill. They never refill in a timeline that has anything to do with you and me being around. Or our great 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 grandchildren won't be around. There still won't be a drop in them if we deplete them now. That's one thing. We have water shortages. But why do we have water shortages? Here's the thing, folks. Water doesn't go away. There's something called a water cycle. When you use water, it gets recycled, goes back into the atmosphere, and ends up back down on the planet somewhere. Even the ocean water gets evaporated, leaving the salt behind, and turns into freshwater rain. The water shortage is less about population and more about how the water is being used. If you look at modern agriculture, and this is the big thing that bothers me with Monsanto, Monsanto is making modern agriculture something that we can continue to do, ignoring its consequences for longer and longer. Every time there's a problem with modern agriculture, companies like Monsanto find a solution through modification or chemical. Now, what's the problem with that? Why isn't that a good thing? Go out to any major commercial farm today. 
Walk out on that field in between crops when the farmer won't get pissed at you. Walk out into the middle of the field and pick up the soil. Especially if it hasn't rained any time recently. Tell me what you see. Most people know enough to already know what that's going to look like. Will it look like deep, living loam? Soil that's alive, that's thriving. No, it looks like sterile dust, because that's what it is. That sterile dust doesn't hold water. Water runs right off of it. So we have to water our crops more. When was the last time you went through a cornfield and saw anything that looked like mulch on the ground? For God's sakes, if the guys would just plant beans in among their corn, they'd create a natural level of mulch in there. But it would be harder to harvest. Couldn't harvest as much as fast. That's why they do, that's why they do it that way. They want something they can drive a tractor through. Well, we're destroying our planet, folks. This is not tree hugging environmentalism you're hearing today. This is fact. Go look at a farm field. You'll see it for yourself. It's that simple to see. We've turned fertile land into sterile sponge. Sponge with which we treat with chemicals. How long can this go on? How long can this be sustainable? We're salting the freaking earth. And that's not a metaphor. It is a serious problem. Australia has this problem worse than the United States. There are freshwater bodies, hundreds of miles inland in Australia, where the water has become so salty, all freshwater species have died. Where did the salt come from? It came from the earth. It came from overwatering the, the earth. When you overwater the earth, eventually the salts in the earth rise to the surface, and then they wash off the surface, and they go into the groundwater, and they go into the surface water. So what was Australia's solution to this? They built a great big bunch of uh, concrete um, uh, ditches, and then they give all their farmers for free pumps so they can pump the salt water out, get rid of it, <laughs> instead of stopping what they're doing. These are the threats to our food supply. This is why I'm so big on you growing your own. It's a revolution, but it's also a survival skill. You can't change these things directly, especially quickly. And in some instances, in some ways, I hope that collectively as a society, we come to a realization that we need to correct these things slowly over time. We can't, as bad as this stuff is, we can't flip a switch tomorrow and just stop doing it. Do you know how many people would starve? The reality is tens, if not hundreds of millions of people would starve if we tried to turn the switch overnight. See, this is what happens when environmentalism, unchecked, collides with reality. This is exactly what's happening right now in the San Joaquin Valley in California, where they shut off the water to save a fish, a little delta smelt. Here's the thing about this delta smelt. Yeah, it's endangered. It's not even indigenous to that area. For those folks that don't know... What indigenous means, it means it was introduced into that delta. It doesn't belong there. It's not native. But yet we're protecting it because it has a population there. Um, and it probably would not be wiped out if they gave these guys more water. Now, what's the real problem with the San Joaquin Valley and all these orchards and farms and things that are dependent upon this massive amount of water being pumped in? They're built for modern agriculture. There's no permaculture concepts going on there. Giant straight rows of the same variety of fruits or vegetables or nuts or whatever it is. Saw one poor guy. I feel so bad for him. Huge almond plantation. He's destroying millions of dollars worth of trees this year. He can't keep that many alive. So the best thing he can do is he pulls them out of the ground and shreds them. He's selling them as mulch. Let me say this again. This is why I feel bad for the guy. He doesn't understand his own business. He's selling his shredded almond trees for mulch. Okay, if he has to shred his almond trees, maybe he should save that mulch and use it. You think maybe he would get more efficient water usage if he took half of his orchard, shredded it for mulch, and put all the mulch on the other part of his orchard? What if these guys went in there and started using swales and permaculture techniques and building food forests in the San Joaquin Valley and just massively decreased the amount of water that they needed? But the solution was to shut it off overnight. We realized how much damage is actually being done. And here's the thing. I have mixed emotions on this decision. I think trying to save a non-indigenous species, a fish, and costing these families their entire farms, generations, is, dis- is dis- 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 
disgusting. But we're destroying that land. The very farming that they're doing and depending on that land is destroying it. So it has to happen. But if we were an intelligent society, what we would have done is gone in and said, look, we're setting a timeline on this. It is going to happen. We are going to reduce the water. You have 10 years. And we're going to offer you all the support we can with planning systems that will work with less water. Fight it all you want, but it's going to happen. Ten years would have been plenty of time to turn things around. And what we would have then coming out of the San Joaquin Valley is much more diversity on individual plots of land. And farmers that could stand through more problems and more harsh uh, events. And that would give us greater stability for our food supply. So the opportunity there in the San Joaquin Valley was to do something monumental, an example, to fix the problem for everybody. And instead what we've done is put people out of work and have farmers now that are making land they've been turning into desert and accelerating the place. So we're making the land worse, the food supply worse, the economy worse, but the fish gets to live. You know, what if we went down to half of the plants that were out there? What if everybody did what this guy with his almonds was doing and then started to immediately turn the other half of that into a permaculture-based system and slowly invade the rest of their property? What if they brought in people like Jeff Lott and Bill Molson and said, tell us what to do, we'll do it? That place could become the most amazing thing you've ever seen in your life out there. Those farmers have the ability, the tools, and the manpower to get the job done if they were just wise enough. But you can't cut it off overnight. You can't do what you've done to these people. All we're going to do now is lose that whole thing. That's what's going to happen. And it's going to be a very slow process. And maybe people that are enlightened about new methods of agriculture that are actually ancient will go into that area. As the land becomes worthless and is sold off for a tenth of its prior value, the people that are visionaries will go in there doing it. But by the time they get that land, everything will be dead. And it will take so much longer to do. This is what your government's doing to help you. Preserve the life of a fish at the expense of lives of humans. This is why I tell you to grow your own food. This is why I tell you to store your own food. Notice I'm not saying, hey, they're going to round you all up. It's the new world order. They're going to put us all in, in camps, and you're going to get on a red line, and you're going to go to a re-education camp, and because I'm a radical, I'm going to go on a blue line, and they're going to inject me and kill me. No. Our government does more damage by incompetence than they do by malice. Say that again. Our government does much more damage via incompetence than they do by malice. The entire situation in Central California right now is an example of what incompetence at all levels begats. We have farmers that farm a specific way because they don't know another way. Because they're farming into an economy that requires them to play along or go out of business. We have a government that doesn't really care about the farmer, just pays lip service and subsidies to them. We have an entire workforce of illegal labor out there, killing themselves in the field for very, very little money. We have an unproductive, unsustainable system. And all of that is met headlong together and caused one catastrophe. And all it means right now for most Americans is we pay two or three cents a pound more for Chilean fruit. Because the Chileans aren't that stupid. Not exactly brilliant, but they're not that dumb. So, so far it hasn't really hit us in the pocketbook. But the same guy that was selling, that was destroying his almond trees, when he was asked that by the reporter, I think it was on 2020, do you know what he said? He said, you'll feel it next year. So this is the first year. You wait. It's coming. Because you see those trees I'm destroying? It doesn't matter if it rains every day next year. Those trees will never produce anything ever again. Because now they are shredded. And he picked it up and he held it and showed it to her. That's gone. And when, when things that you've been purchasing are gone, you create shortages and prices go up. Basic economics. At least the guy knew that. But as I sat there and looked at this guy's almond plantation, and I watched him shred all these trees... And I watched him talk about selling away the mulch. It just it disturbed me deeply as a human being. 
Because I think I could go out there and spend a couple weeks with him and look at his land and tell him how to change everything about what he's doing. But I don't think he would listen. And to be fair to him, at this point in his, in his life, he may not be able to afford to listen. He may just simply need to salvage what he has to get by before he loses everything. He may not have time now because he wasn't given time by a system that didn't understand. How is this all related to Monsanto and the plants all over the planet? What's going to happen when the incompetence of government overreaction meets the reality of the dangers being put out by genetically modified plants? You know, it's funny, folks. When I paused the recording, I checked my email real quick. You know, about six of you, just while I'm broadcasting today, emailed me the article about Monsanto's organ damage, the, the organ damage caused by Monsanto corn. It's real. People know about it. It's going to become more and more real and more and more evident. And what's going to happen one day when some group of environmentalists goes up to the United States Supreme Court with irrefutable evidence and says, this is a violation of some environmental policy that you guys put on the books and force your own policy. And the court looks at it and eventually puts their hands up and goes, "We have just like happened in California with the stupid fish. We have no choice. We have to do this. All of this stuff is banned now. And it's cut off like that. Instead of, let's change what we're doing over time. What kind of food shortage would that cause? Sooner or later it has to happen, unless we change it. And we change it in our backyards. If you're a farmer... If you're a farmer and you listen to this show and you have 40 acres and you farm it the way that everybody else does, I have a challenge for you. Set aside two acres. Spend $100. Buy the permaculture design manual. Take a course for a couple thousand dollars. Change that two acres. Just that two acres. It's 5%. Five years from now, you'll be amazed at what you've accomplished. And you'll start migrating that throughout the rest of your farm. We can't keep doing things the way that we are. And there's two ways to change it. And only two. By choice, which is the smart way, the intelligent way, the evolved way, the educated way, the reasonable way. And by necessity and circumstance, which is when we run into it full tilt bore, smack, and we run up against it, and people start dying. Because it has to be at that point. And I wish it could be more motivational for you today, but those are our only two choices. We don't get any other choices with that. It's all there is. There's a point that we realize that we're poisoning ourselves and destroying our planet, and we have to cut it off overnight. Or is a rational, slow weaning process to change what we're doing for the better. And it only has to take about 10 years. And we could take 20 If we start now, we can take 20 years. It's okay. Because production will begin to come up from other methodologies over time. And if everybody does a little bit in their backyard at the exact same time, so we take pressure off of the systems at the exact same time. And if we spread this technology around, we don't guard this technology. We don't patent this technology. Have you ever heard of a patent on permaculture? You can't put a swale in a certain depth in a certain way because it's ours. No, it's shared. It's open technology. For your computer types, that's like Linux or Unix, right? Or Firefox. Open. Anybody can use it, anybody can design for it, anybody can design with it. That's what permaculture is. So we can take 20 years to get there, to where we've completely abolished conventional farming. We have plenty of time, if we start now. Notice you haven't heard the word global warming. I don't give a damn about global warming. That's the beauty of permaculture. It doesn't give a damn about it either. It may or may not affect it. But it will adapt to whatever happens. Short of the sun going supernova. It'll handle it. If we can grow figs and pomegranates in the, a couple miles from the Dead Sea in the middle of a salted desert with permaculture, what, we can, what can we do with some of the most fertile land in the world? Central Germany the Dutch farming region of Pennsylvania, 
the Midwestern United States, the San Joaquin Valley of California. What can we do in those areas if we follow the example of what a small group of people did in the middle of a salted flat in the middle of a desert? And they were successful. We can fix it. What can you do? You're sitting on your tenth of an acre lot. You can do it in your backyard. Start to grow something of your own. Both for emergency purposes, because you can eat what you're producing in an emergency, and you can store what you're producing for an emergency, and to ensure long-term survivability of everybody. We are not isolationists of the Survival Podcast. We are not sitting in a bunker in the middle of Idaho, hiding a one-man operation, waiting for the black helicopters to fly. We are people that are involved in our communities. Those that go to churches are involved in their churches. We're involved in our kids' schools. We're involved in scouting. Many of us are law enforcement officers. Many of us are farmers. We're all walks of life and all people. I know that because I get your emails and I see where they come from. We have people that work, or at least one guy that worked for NASA, the space program. Worked on the space shuttle program. Police officers in Texas... Florida, Pennsylvania, Ohio, California, soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines. That's what the Survival Podcast is. You know what else we are? We're Australians. We're British. We're Irish. Puerto Rican. Iraqi. Afghan. There's people that listen to this show that care about these same things in all of those nations and several dozen more. It's overwhelming to me. I I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I can't believe that later today, probably tomorrow, there'll be a group of Iraqi contract workers that are building and rebuilding their own nation, sitting around with one American, sitting around a computer, listening to this very broadcast. I can't believe that. But what does that tell us? People care about these types of things. They care about self-sufficiency and self-reliance. But we're coming to a realization that self-sufficiency and self-reliance will never effectively work as a one-man operation, as a one-man show. In every crisis, what do people do? They seek other people. There may be really bad people in this world. We may have to worry about those bad people in certain situations. But we don't survive that type of person By being Rambo. We survive it by being a strong community of individuals that know our neighbors on a first name basis and trade different varieties of fruits and vegetables across our fence, just like we did a hundred years ago. We create that community by when we see a kid running down the street doing something he's not supposed to, knowing that's Johnny and he lives over there and having a conversation with his mom. Where kids are afraid to cause trouble because dad's going to find out because everybody knows dad. Remember those days? That wasn't that long ago. I know whose boy you are. Remember those days? That's our generation. That's our lifetime. Where did it go? Some people blame the internet. Some people blame television. They had television in those days. didn't have the internet. Two are pretty much one and the same in the way they take up time, though. The Internet's a wonderful thing. It's enabled information sharing. The problem we have is we've taken the responsibility to provide for ourselves and we've advocated it to other people. I won't worry about food. I'll just go to the store. I won't even worry a little bit. See, our grandparents went to the store. They bought food. My grandmother had a butcher and a uh, a farmer, we called them. The farmer brought eggs and milk, um, never brought vegetables. I don't know why we called them farmer. That's what they called them. And the butcher brought meat. And they drove little vans. And they would come to the door. They'd knock. Your grandma here. Yeah, and she'd go out and she'd look and she'd pick the meat she wanted. Or she'd get, I need a dozen eggs and two gallons of milk. Like front door service. So they bought their food too. They had a garden. They took responsibility for some portion of their own food. The men hunted and fished. and took responsibility and understood the connection. See, we've lost that connection. When you've never grown a single piece of food for yourself... You actually think that carrots come in a plastic bag. That's their natural state. And you don't have failures to look at. 
See, it's amazing what happens when a person plants a garden and one of their plants that they were so, I had this is going to be a great tomato, this Cherokee purple tomato, and then this year, you know, blight hits and it kills their plant. They don't get a tomato out of that plant. And they realize crops can fail. Food doesn't always get produced. They do some work and they realize somebody somewhere had to do work so that they could eat. Changes the entire dynamic. But it all starts with you. And there are real, credible threats to our food supply. So I'm encouraging you. Basically, I'm either commanding or begging, whichever one works better with you, that you take some responsibility for the production of your own food and that you do it in a sustainable way. Not to save the whales, not to save the seals, and not to stop global warming. To save humanity from starvation. Because that's what waits for us on the other side unless we act. The good news is we can act. We can stop producing deserts, and we can turn deserts back into prairies. Technology is simple, it exists, and people know how to use it. Educate yourself, arm yourself. When you look at your kids, or if you don't have children, when you look at the children in your neighborhood, or your nieces, or your nephews, understand, if our parents understood these things and did them 40 years ago, you'd be able to walk through any part of America today plucking food at will from trees and bushes and vines that's what could have been here for us will most of us will never actually see it but we can create it start in our backyards this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the survival podcast helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't you can scream and you can holler it really doesn't matter Cause it all gets spent